Amen. We're glad to see all of you and glad to see that Williams is back. And so you had a good, safe trip. And we're glad, glad you got back safely. The statement that I read to you last week was, I am a Messianic Gentile who has come to Mount Zion and to the altar, and I have been circumcised by Jesus the Christ. I have the law, the Torah, in my heart. I am a child of Abraham, and I am a member of the temple, and Jerusalem is my mother, and the Lord Jesus Christ is my high priest, and I have entered into the Sabbath rest, I am a partaker of Israel's spiritual heritage. I am a Jew in the biblical sense, and I am classified as belonging to the Israel of God. Here in Romans chapter 11, he begins the chapter with, Has God cast away his people? And he says he has not. After I have finished, God willing, with this little series of studies, we're going to look at verse by verse at Romans 11. Romans 11. But the point that, uh, that I want to make tonight is found in verse 26. Romans chapter 11. This is where we left off last time. And in verse 26... He says that uh, all Israel shall be saved. He tells us in verse 25, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, lest you should be wise in your own conceit. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant unto them when I take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. As touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. We know that uh, the Lord knows exactly what he's doing and that he sent the gospel through the Jew to the rest of the world to bring the Gentiles to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to him as Messiah, that he, we believe he is the promised uh, Messiah from Genesis 3.15. In fact, in our conference this year, our New Testament conference, I have to speak on the so-called Proto-Evangelium, which is Genesis 3.15, on the subject, the foundation of our hope. If Genesis 3.15 is not the foundation of our hope, everything that follows that to the end of the Bible means absolutely nothing. If we don't have a hope in the Messiah, we have no hope whatsoever. So I'm a Messianic Gentile who's come to Mount Zion and the altar. I've been circumcised by Jesus. I have the law in my heart. And I, have, uh, I am a child of Abraham. I gave you passages for all of these 
things. And I am a member of the temple. And I am in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jerusalem is my mother. And I want us to look at two or three passages of Scripture. Uh, we've got this, uh, somehow or another, I think I've got a mixed up passage here because what I have in my notes and what I, the point that I want to make to you are not one of the same. At least I don't see them here. Um, so I must have written down a wrong, a wrong chapter. So let's, let's begin by looking at Hebrews, uh, uh, Galatians chapter 4. Let's go there. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, we read about the two women who gave birth to two different children, and the lesson that he's teaching us here is, do you want to be under the law, or do you want to be in Christ? Look at, for example, Look at verse 21, Galatians 4, verse 21. Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Now, the book of Galatians is written to deal with this particular problem of law and grace. And a lot of us today have, still have problems with it. We don't understand sometimes the differences between law and grace. He says, so tell me, you that say you want to be under the law, don't you hear what the law says. Then he gives us an allegory. Verse 22, Abraham had two sons. He had one son by a bondmaid. That son was Ishmael. He had the other one by a free woman. That was the son of Sarah, who was Isaac. Ishmael and Isaac. Okay? Now he's going to tell us something that's kind of shocking. I think most of us understand that. That Abraham... Uh, was told by the Lord that he was going to have a son. And his wife, Sarah, said, well, I'm too old to have them, have any children. And so you go in unto my handmaid, Hagar, my Egyptian handmaid. We understand that. And the Lord told Abraham, no, this is not the son that I promised you. Because later, Abraham said, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And the Lord said, no, this is what you cooked up with Sarah and Hagar. But the son I'm going to give you is going to come by promise. So we would think that would be standing for works. That's your works as, regard, uh, as opposed to what God has given you. All right. He who was of the bondwoman, verse 23, was born after the flesh. That's what I just said. It was their plan that created Ishmael. But he of the free woman was born by promise. This was the promise that God made to Abraham of giving him a son. Which things are an allegory? These are the two covenants, he says. The one covenant from Mount Sinai, which genders to bondage, which is Hagar. And Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and watch this now, and answers to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. He says, 
that the child of the flesh created by Abraham and Hagar is a, uh, an allegory, a symbol of Jerusalem in Israel with the Jews who are in bondage. So you would think that he would talk about two other things, maybe talk about, uh, and he's going to, the salvation that we have in Christ, which is by grace, and the salvation that people try to get under the law by doing good works, by doing the right thing. You see, we're not saved, you know this, we're not saved by works, but we are saved unto works. We are saved in order that God might work in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And He works good works. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 says that it's predestinated for us to walk in good works. He works in us and we walk according to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But He says here that this bondage that came down on Mount Sinai, verse 25, which is the law in Arabia, he says that answers to that correspondence to Jerusalem over in Israel, which now is, is, in, is in bondage with her, with her children. The poor Jewish people are still in bondage. And I have to remind myself all the time that when the Lord talked to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and he said, you must be born again, he used the plural there. And so when he's talking, just like we do, we, we can say, I am talking to you, and I mean all of you, or I can say, I'm talking to you, and I mean a single person, maybe Stephen, or maybe Calvin. Same thing in the Greek, but when he speaks to Nicodemus, and he says, ye must be born again. The ye there is plural, meaning everybody, Nicodemus, who is like you. I hope none of us believe that the Jewish person, man or woman, can get to heaven other than through faith in Christ. There are pastors and preachers and teachers today that I believe seem to teach that a Jewish person who is a religious Jew, can go to heaven because they are related to Abraham, therefore they're Jewish, therefore they're children of God. I get literature every time, and I support some of these places that say, you know, it always quotes on the, on your, uh, the envelope there, they that curse you, you know, I'm going to curse those that curse you, and I'm going to bless those that bless you. So I ask you this, you go over to Israel, and you ask the Jew, what kind of blessing are you getting while you're rejecting God's Son? You see, we're doing the Jewish people a disfavor when we make them think that they are still special in God's sight, but they're rejecting God's Son. Something is wrong here. You cannot be saved unless you come. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father, but through me. So we have to understand that the Jewish people have to be saved. They have to be born again. They have to be made new creatures in Christ, just like a Gentile person. That's why I said I am a Messianic Gentile believer. I said in our first study that there are a lot of so-called Messianic congregations across America 
I praise the Lord for any congregation that believes that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ. But we're a Messianic congregation here. This is a Messianic congregation because we believe that Jesus is the Christ. We don't have any other hope other than him. So he, he points out here that the Jerusalem that is in uh, Israel is in bondage. I'm going to bring a study, God willing, and I live. <laughs> I've been bringing a series of studies uh, recently on the coming of the Messiah. And I dealt with, uh, about three or four studies ago, I dealt with this thing about the temple. And I have information about people in Israel that they say is pretty, pretty substantial information, pretty much uh, uh, substantiated by the proofs that they have all of the mechanisms in place they have all of the things in place to build what's called the third temple. And I hate to get into what I'm going to teach you then, but I, I'm going to say this tonight. If they build the third temple, what does that mean? It means that they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means. If they build a third temple, what's the part, point of the temple? Well, you've got to have to start offering sacrifices again. And how in the world are they going to offer sacrifices with the priest that God chose from Aaron, the Levitical priesthood? How are they going to trace that back? That's all been destroyed. That was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans when they destroyed the temple. And so if they set up a temple... It's going to be their own temple. They're going to set it up. Uh, they're going to choose who's going to minister in the temple. They're going to set back up those sacrifices again. My friends, that will not be a sign of God's blessings upon Israel. That will be a sign of God's judgment on Israel. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, but that is true. You can't have it both ways. You can't, there aren't, there's only one way to heaven. And that one way is through the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't go any other way. And he tells us here in Galatians, and I know this was a shock to the Galatians because this, this is a legal epistle. He says, this Hagar that's in Mount Sinai, verse 25. Now we know that the law was given on Mount Sinai. He says, this Hagar is Mount Sinai. Hagar, the Egyptian that gave birth to Ishmael, that genders to bondage. He says that in verse 24. The two things are an allegory. These two covenants are one from Mount Sinai, which genders to bondage, which is Hagar. And this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answers to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her, husband, with her children. I don't think there's any other way to, to understand that. So he said bondage points to Jerusalem and Israel. They want, there may be an awakening in Israel. I pray that there will be an awakening there in which many, many, many souls that are Jews will believe in Jesus as Messiah. There are a lot of Jews today being converted, a lot of Jews being saved. And I thank the Lord for that. But the nation of Israel over there, until they turn to Jesus as Messiah. You remember what I told you in Matthew chapter 24 when he left the temple? It was actually the last few verses of chapter 23. He said, I'm leaving and you won't see me again 
until you say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And the word blessed is the word from which we get our word eulogy. You know what it is to eulogize someone at a funeral? It is to say a good word about them. And so Jesus says, you're not going to see me again until you have a good word to say about me. <laughs> and until you have a good word to say about me, I'm not coming back. And when he left that temple in Matthew, last uh, few verses of 23 and on into 24, uh, he hasn't been back and he's not coming back until he comes again. All right, watch this now. But, verse 26, but the Jerusalem which is above is free which is the mother of us, all of us who believe, whether Jew or Gentile, the Jerusalem which is above is our mother, not the Jerusalem that is over in Israel. So I am a Messianic Gentile who has come to Mount Zion and the altar, and we looked at all the passages that relate to these statements I've been circumcised by Jesus. I have the Torah, the law in my heart. I'm a child of Abraham. I'm a member of the temple. And Jerusalem is my mother. This is also uh, found in Hebrews 12, 22. Uh, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12. Revelation 21 verses 1 and 2. And Revelation 21 and verse 10. But this is the most telling, uh, these are the most telling verses here in Galatians chapter 4. Now, brethren, he says in verse 28, brethren, Galatians 4, 28. Brethren, we, we who believe, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. You have been given to the Son by the Father just as surely as he gave Isaac to Abraham and uh, Sarah. And there are lots of lessons that can be brought out here. Number one, Isaac was a miracle child, wasn't he? And every one of you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are miracles. You were dead in your sins. And God has brought you, he has made you alive. Ephesians 2, 1. Even you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses in sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now working all children of disobedience. But God, in his mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we're dead, has quickened us and made us alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, we brethren... As, as Isaac was, we're the children of promise. He goes on to talk about the war that exists between those who are following Christ and those who are not in verse 29. As he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Verse 30, cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. You understand that? That's kind of crazy. I mean, it's not what you would normally think. Because he takes Sinai, which is bondage, the law. He takes Hagar, which is an Egyptian. And he makes that Jerusalem, which is in Israel. 
And he says they are in bondage. But we, the Jerusalem that is our mother, is the Jerusalem that comes down from above. All right? And then the next thing we are, Jerusalem is our mother and Jesus is our high priest. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. I hope that's sufficiently clear. I'm sorry I sent you to Romans 11. Hebrews chapter 8. He's talking to us in chapter 7 about a changing of the priest. You notice verse 1, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, this Melchizedek. Okay, now the high priest of Israel, the first high priest of Israel was who? Was Aaron, Moses' brother. That was the high priest of Israel. Uh, And the people that became high priests after that were all related to Aaron. It was Aaron's sons, and then it was Aaron's sons, sons, and there was Aaron's sons, sons, sons. And it went all the way down to 70 AD when the Romans, under Titus, the Roman general, destroyed Israel, destroyed the temple. Okay? Destroyed the whole thing. So now, here in the book of Hebrews, he says, there's a priest called Melchizedek. He's called the king of Salem, verse 1 of chapter 7. Salem means what? It means peace. It's a form of shalom. Uh, He is priest of the Most High God. He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. Abraham had been out to a battle and killed these Uh, five kings. He says Abraham gave a tenth part of all to Melchizedek. He says his name by interpretation, this is chapter 7 verse 2, his name by interpretation means king of righteousness and after that king of Salem which is king of peace. So everything about Melchizedek points to our Lord Jesus Christ. See we have a high priest now who is seated at the right hand of God in the temple in heaven, there to make intercession for all who come unto God by him. That's what the high priest did. The the job of the prophet was to reveal the mind of God to the people. That's why the prophets say, thus saith the Lord. The job of the priest was to go to God to represent the people on behalf of the people and offer sacrifices which were emblematic or symbolic of Christ who came and offered himself. So, when we get to chapter 8, he says in verse 1, Now the things of which we have spoken, this is the sum. I'm going to sum it up for you. We have a high priest. And he is set down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's why I say again, if they build a temple in Jerusalem. Of course, it's going to be World War III if they believe that the present uh, mosque uh, is sitting right there 
That's what many people think. I differ with that. I have told you that I believe that the, the temple was down the road just a little ways. But the Lord uh, knows where it is. But if they think that where that mosque is in Jerusalem is where they want to build the temple. And they try to take that from, from Islam, the, uh, from uh, the, the Arabs, uh, not just the Arabs, but the Islamic peoples, the Muslims, then you're going to have World War III right away. <laughs> so he says, he says, this is the psalm now. We have a high priest. He's at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He is a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, the tabernacle whence the Lord pitched and not man. Now what that means is not that when they had a tabernacle, God gave them instructions on how to put that tabernacle together and how to build it, but it was built by men. But the tabernacle he's talking about is no man had a hand in building it. Okay? He goes on to tell us about the priest being ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices in verse 3. He tells us about how they all served an example. Verse 5, the example and shadow of heavenly things. He said when God gave Moses the instructions of building the tabernacle on earth, he warned him in verse 5, See that you make everything according to the pattern that I showed you in the mount. When Moses went up in that mountain, there was nobody but he and God. And the Lord showed him exactly what he wanted him to build and how he wanted him to build it. And if you read Leviticus and Numbers and part, part of Exodus, you'll see it's very detailed. Everything is extremely detailed. Nothing is left out. Okay. So he says, you make it according to that pattern. But now, he says in verse 6, now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. He is the mediator of a much better covenant that was established upon better promises. If that first covenant had been faultless, they wouldn't have needed another covenant. But finding fault, verse 8, the Lord said, the days are coming when I'm going to make a new covenant. It's going to be a, new, a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It's not going to be according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. This is all mentioned, of course, in Jeremiah chapter 31. When I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, they didn't continue in that covenant. I regarded them not. This is the covenant that I'm going to make. With the Israel of God after those days, I'm going to put my laws into their mind. What did I say a while ago? I said, I have the Torah, the law, in my heart. Okay? I'm going to put their laws in my mind. People say, well, how in the world are you going to know what sin is if you still don't, if you don't have the law? And, of course, I've answered this many different times in many different ways. But the first question I ask is, how do you think Adam knew what sin was? He lived way before the law was ever given. He knew because the Spirit of God told him what sin was. We are now indwelt by the Spirit of the Lord, and we don't have to have external laws that say, now don't lie. 
Because you've got a spirit within you, which is the spirit of Christ, who is the spirit of truth, that teaches us everything that the law demands. And we walk through faith in Christ, who kept all of that for us. All of you should know that. I think you do. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant, not according to that old covenant. I'm going to write the laws, my laws, in their minds. I'm going to put them in their hearts. I'll be to them a God. They shall be to me a, a, a people. And watch this now. Verse 11, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 11. They'll not have to teach every man. See, the Lord said to Moses, I want you to teach all these people and I want all of them to constantly and continuously teach their children. And when their children grow up, they teach their children. You keep on teaching them about these laws because that's the way you're going to know me. And he says here, they're not going to teach every man saying, know the Lord, because all are going to know me from the least to the greatest. Everybody that's in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, everybody who has Christ as their Lord and as their Savior, all of them know the Lord. There's not one who doesn't know the Lord. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, verse 12, and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he hath made the first one old, that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. Jesus is our high priest, and he has a priesthood that he didn't inherit. You understand that what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is, when God made Aaron high priest, then one of his sons became high priest. Then one of his grandchildren came on front. Then one of his great-grandchildren. Okay, uh, if Jesus were in that priesthood, Jesus would just inherit the priesthood from the former priest. But he didn't inherit the priesthood. He's got a totally different priesthood. One that's of a different nature, a totally different thing. He's got the, uh, a priesthood that's after the order of Melchizedek. Okay? And he shows you how great Melchizedek is. We just read that a moment ago because Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. He, he gave him a tenth of all of his spoils. So our Lord Jesus Christ is our high priest. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. The things that we have spoken, this is the sum we have a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pits to not man. Okay, that's verses uh, 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 8. All right, now turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I am a Messianic Gentile. I have come to Mount Zion not to Mount Sinai, I have come to the altar, which is Christ. I have been circumcised in my heart, not in my skin by the law, but in my heart by Jesus. I have the Torah in my heart. I have Christ in my soul. I am a child of Abraham. I've been given to Christ by promise, just as Isaac was. I'm a member of the temple. Jerusalem is my mother. Jesus is my high priest. And I have entered into the Sabbath rest. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. 
The whole thing is about rest. Now look at verse 1. He says, Let's fear lest the promise left of us to, of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Chapter 3 ends with him warning us by using the children of Israel as an example because they would not believe the Lord. They could never enter in the rest. If you look at Hebrews 3 verse 9, they could not enter in because of unbelief. So then what we have is our chapter 4, let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, verse 2, as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being with faith, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. The scriptures must be received, the promises of God must be believed and will be believed by the elect of God, by the children of God. They will believe the Lord. We which have believed, verse 3, do enter into rest. As he said, I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Then he gives us uh, an illustration from the Sabbath day. He spake in a certain place on the seventh day on this wise. God did rest on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this place, Psalm 95, 11, if they shall enter into this rest, seeing therefore that when he said those things, there remained another rest. And those to whom it was preached, verse 6, did not enter into that rest because of unbelief, then there must be a rest for us. So he says in verse 11, or verse 10, verse 9, there remains a rest for the people of God. The people of God were the Jew or Gentile. He says in verse 8, if Jesus, how many of you have Joshua in verse 8 in your, okay. The Jesus of verse 8 is Joshua of the Old Testament. I've told you before that, that the Hebrew name for Jesus is the name Joshua. Joshua and Jesus mean the same thing. And it said, he says if Joshua had given them rest in verse 8, then he would not, the Lord would not afterward have spoken of another day. So there remains, verse 9, a rest to the people of God. All right, who's going to have that rest? He that has entered into his rest has ceased from his own works, verse 10. Just as God, when he created the world in six days, rested on the seventh, that is, he ceased from creating, so we cease from trying to attain the blessings of God and the promises of God uh, by our works, by doing things by, or, and by not doing things. So he says, no, we, we cease from all of that and we simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us therefore, verse 11, let us therefore labor to enter into that rest. Now, isn't that something? Let's work, let's work to, enter, to rest. Let's labor to rest. It is a difficult thing just to rest in Christ. We're always wanting to add something. We're always wanting to do something. And he has to teach us over and over and over again 
that Christ has done it all, and all we need to do is lay hold of him. Let us labor to enter into that rest, verse 11, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. How did you fall? You don't believe. You don't believe God's words. You don't believe God's promises. He tells us that the word of God is very powerful in verse 12. It's the thing that pierces our souls, pierces our hearts, lets us know that we are open to the God who made us, that everything is naked in his sight, verse 13. All things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Since we have a great high priest, verse 14, that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast our profession. So he's writing to a lot of people who were leaving their professions of faith, especially Jews, and going back into Judaism. And they were saying, some people were saying to them, you know, you had a temple. Now as Christians, you don't have a temple. And he writes in here and he says, yeah, we've got a temple. He said, well, you, did, you, you had a high priest. Now you don't have a high priest. No, we've got a high priest. We had sacrifices. Now you don't have sacrifices. He said, no, we've got a sacrifice. Christ is our sacrifice. He's the high priest. And he comes into us and we come into him through faith and he comes into us by his spirit. We become the temple of God in which God dwells. And we dwell in Christ who is the Shekinah glory that's in the temple. And so he says, this word of God that deals with us and opens us up, verses uh, 12 and 13, to see that we have a great high priest, verse 14, that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So let's hold fast. Let's don't go back. We don't have a high priest that can't be touched with the feet of our infirmities. We've got a high priest that was a man, that he was tempted in all points like it, yet as we are, yet without sin. There are three points of temptation, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the uh, eyes, and the pride of life. Jesus, as a man, dealt with everything we have to deal with without sin. So he says, let's come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now let me try to make this point. Now we go to Romans 11. Romans 11. I'm a Messianic Gentile who's come to Mount Zion and the altar. I have been circumcised by Jesus. I have the Torah in my heart. I'm a child of Abraham. I'm a member of the temple. Jerusalem is my mother. Jesus is my high priest. I've entered into the Sabbath rest. And therefore, I am a partaker of Israel's spiritual heritage. Romans chapter 11 Romans chapter 11. <clears throat> I'm still in. Okay. All right. Romans 11. I will have to spend more time on this next time, maybe. But he tells us that the there's a remnant of Israel, that God is going to save. 
He says in verse 2 of Romans 11, God has not cast away his people whence he foreknew. He says that God says in verse 4, I have reserved to myself 7,000 men. That's when the prophet said, God, I'm the only one left. Everybody's turned away and he said, no, I've got 7,000 that I've reserved to myself that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, verse 5, even so, Romans 11, verse 5, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. If you're saved by grace, it can't be by works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. If it's by works, it can't be by grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. You can't have a mixture of grace and works. You're saved from beginning to end by grace. What then, verse 7, Israel, Israel after the flesh has not obtained what he seeks for. How did Israel seek it? Well, they sought it by the keeping of the law. They sought it by genealogy. I'm part of, I'm, I'm a descendant of Abraham. They sought it in every way except through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So Israel has not obtained what he seeks for, but the election has obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Watch this now. As it is written, verse 8, God gave them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear, unto this day. And David said, let the table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense. That's in Psalm, I think, 69. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. Have they stumbled that they shouldn't fall? Well, no, but through this, through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. In other words, God turned to the Gentiles through the Jewish evangelists, the 12 apostles. And he says, if the fall of them, verse 12 is the riches of the world. In other words, if God's going to save multitudes which cannot be numbered from every kindred, tribe, nation, tongue, and tribe, if their fall resulted in millions upon millions of souls being saved, what in the world would it mean if they're restored? It would be a fantastic and a great blessing. Verse 15, if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? If the first fruit be holy, then the lump is holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree, referring to the Gentiles, were grafted in, and with them partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Now he says here that the Gentiles that come to faith in Israel's Messiah have been grafted in among them. What does that mean except that we receive the blessings that they have received in the Messiah? We receive all of the blessings that they receive in the Messiah. 
All, everything that, uh, that God had for them, we receive it. And he, he tells us not to boast of Gentiles as a group of people. Verse 21, if God spared not the natural branches, that's the Jews, take heed lest he spare not thee. Behold the goodness and the severity of God on them that fail severity toward you goodness if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you'll be cut off. So if they abide not in unbelief, verse 23, they shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, verse 25. Don't be ignorant of this great mystery lest you should be wise in your own conceit. The blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Now, I take that to mean until the last Gentile that God intends to save is saved. That's what I take that to mean. And so, verse 26, all Israel shall be saved. Now, if you are a Messianic Gentile, if you have come to Mount Zion and to the true altar, if you've been circumcised by Jesus, if you have the Torah in your heart, if you're a child of Abraham, if you're a member of the temple, the spiritual temple, if the heavenly Jerusalem is your mother, if Jesus is your high priest, if you've entered into the Sabbath rest, then you are a partaker of Israel's spiritual heritage. I mean, you can agree to that. <laughs> and therefore, you belong to the Israel of God. One more passage. Galatians chapter 6. We have to go back to Galatians one more time. Galatians chapter 6. Now, friends, it may seem that we're cutting off Israel, but I'm not cutting anybody off. I'm telling you what the Scripture says. And the Scripture says that there's only one way to God, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can be born in Israel. You have to come to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be born in San Francisco. You have to come to God through faith in Christ. You can be born in Hong Kong. You have to come to God through faith in Christ. There's only one way. We can't have two different plans of salvation. We can't have one plan for the Jew and one plan for the Gentile. It's just one way. There's one covenant, and all of those who come to Christ know the Lord. Galatians chapter 6, he says... Uh, Let's see where we can start to, to sum up here. Um, verse 13, Neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, that be the Jews who were circumcised, but they don't keep the law. They desire to have you circumcised, they make glory in your flesh. They wanted you to be circumcised so they can say that they're the means of your salvation. Because their salvation was in that circumcision, which... Relates to who? To Abraham. It was Abraham that God said this would be the sign of the covenant. God forbid, verse 14, Galatians 6, verse 14. God forbid that I should glory, 
boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. In Christ Jesus, circumcision avails nothing, neither does uncircumcision, only a new creature. It doesn't make a difference whether you're circumcised in your flesh or not circumcised in your flesh. You have to be a new creature. You have to be born again. And watch this, verse 16. As many as walk according to this rule, the circumcision doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're born in Israel or San Francisco. As many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. And I believe the Israel of God here is the totality of all of the people who are saved, who are, and I'm not going to say this whole paragraph again, who are Messianic believers, whether Jews or Gentiles, and all of their salvation is Christ and Him crucified. And they are resting in Him. He's their high priest. Jerusalem is our mother. Jerusalem from above is where the Spirit of God came down from Jerusalem, which is above, and birthed us, was a mother to us, to birth us, to give us new life, born us again into the kingdom of God. Therefore, we are a partaker of all of that spiritual heritage, and we belong to the Israel of God. May the Lord help you and give you understanding in these things. Our 